0: Hey there, I'm Zen, and you are listening to Currents in Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Thanks for listening today. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Erica Chandrika Dunbar. We're discussing her book, Trafficking Hadassah, which offers an insightful and convicting interpretation of Esther. What some have interpreted as a cutesy beauty pageant where lucky girls from the world over get a chance to be a princess, Erica recognizes as a form of sexual trafficking and exploitation. Dr. Dunbar understands this book as part of the broader Say Her Name movement. Here's what she writes, quote, My interpretation allows readers and interpreters to recognize various types of systematic and structural violence perpetrated against Africana females and geographical locales in ancient and contemporary contexts, to critique these intersecting forms of violence, and to consider the role that sacred stories play in creating and maintaining hierarchies of power alongside their impact on the psyches and identities of readers. This is an important book, and I'm excited for you to hear more about it. Dr. Erica Chandrika Dunbar is assistant professor in the religion department here at Baylor University. Her research explores gender, ethnicity, violence, intersectional oppression, sexual or sexualized abuse, colonialism, trauma, and diasporic studies, especially as these relate to the Hebrew Bible. If you enjoy this episode, please share it with someone that you think will enjoy it too. And now, enjoy the conversation. You know who made it. Dr. Dunbar, thank you for joining us on Currents and Religion.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: In your book, Trafficking Hadassah, you offer an Africana biblical interpretation of Esther, especially the first two chapters. So we'll spend some time unpacking what that entails, but f- for the moment, could you remind us of the story that Esther 1 through 2 tells?
1: Sure. Chapter 1 introduces the Persian king, the scope of his kingdom, and provides details about his palace. He hosts two banquets. The first one is 180 days, where he puts his wealth and his splendor on display for its officials and ministers, which include the army men, nobles, and governors. The second banquet lasts seven days for all the people in Susa, both great and small, which is an indicator of class. Um, And this happens in the garden of his palace. At this banquet, he ordered that his guests drink without restraints, which is an interesting law. (laughs) Simultaneously, his wife, Vashti, um, is hosting a banquet for the women inside, so at the onset you can see some gender norms on display the men are outside in the palace and the outside of the palace in the garden and the women are relegated to the inside right the narrator gives readers a clue that the king is married with wine and summons his wife to show off her beauty to his guests which we might assume that they are inebriated as well mm-hmm. she refuses and um, might I point out that she does not speak rather we hear her response or we learn of her response through the e- eunuchs. Mm -hmm. and this enrages the king. He consults sages that supposedly know the laws, and although seven sages are named, one speaks on all of their behalf. Mamakian, who conveys that Vashti's action was not only a wrong done to the king, but to all the people and officials in all the king's provinces. As well, he says that Vashti's actions will inspire rebellion amongst the other noble women. Mm. He suggests banishment, and for her to be replaced by someone who is better than Vashti. However, the king decrees that all women give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. I describe this chapter as a scene wherein the personal is politicized Mm -hmm. to reinforce the gender hierarchy. It illustrates fragile masculinity and fragile patriarchy that, when threatened, responds with an attempt to put women in their place. It's interesting that one single woman resisted being subjected to the sexualized male gaze, but all the women shared in her so-called punish, punishment. Mm-hmm. And then chapter two introduces the king remembering Vashti. We don't know if these are fond memories or memories that trigger anger again, but we do know that he remembers Vashti, yeah. which may indicate that Vashti's punishment is not as successful uh, because she's still present in his mind and his memories. Interesting. Um, perhaps her memory haunts him after he sobers up and realizes what others directed him to do to her. Mm-hmm. Immediately after this, the king's servants that attend him suggest a process of replacing Vashti. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, they suggest, "...let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king." And let the king appoint commissioners in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young girls to the harem in the citadel of Susa under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetic treatments be given them, and let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, so that's what he did. After which, Mordecai and Hadassah are introduced to the readers. Hadassah is described as the cousin of Mordecai, He was raising her because she was orphaned. Both her mother and father died. She is introduced by her Jewish name, Hadassah, um, and the author reveals her Persian name, Esther. Mm -hmm. But after this initial introduction, she is solely referred to as Esther. We learn that the girls are gathered to Susa, put under the custody of Haggai, a eunuch who guards them and provides Hadassah cosmetic treatments, food, and seven maids. We're not told why Hadassah is advanced um, to the best place in the harem. Unlike any of the other girls, her guardian, Mordecai, learns how she fares as he walks in front of the court of the harem each day. And then further down into the process is further revealed. The girls receive seven, 12 months of cosmetic treatments and the girls are advised on what to take with them to the king's palace. And each night a girl goes in, performs sex with the king until he chooses which one sexes him best. Before they enter the king's palace, they are in the harem of women, often translated as wives. When they ex they go to the harem of the concubines.
0: Great. Thank you for, for reminding us of what's in Esther 1 and 2. Uh, and just to kind of start out with, would you tell us kind of big picture how your reading of Esther 1 and 2 diverges Um, from more traditional interpretations?
1: Sure. Thank you for that question. So in traditional Esther scholarship, uh, many scholars frame this abuse as um, pageantry or as as a fun pageant where girls are going to compete to uh, replace Vashti in order to become the queen. But there is no pageant. And if they are competing, it doesn't appear that they're doing so voluntarily. Mm -hmm. If you look at the tense of the verbs, they are sought out and they're gathered, transported to the king's palace. So I titled this book Trafficking Hadassah as a Means of Resistance to framing this story as something funny or humorous. And and to highlight Esther's um, Jewish name, which is Hadassah, Uh, which is suppressed in the story world, as is many other aspects of her identity. And the same happens with other uh, girls that are trafficking in the story. Uh, But I apply trafficking definitions to illuminate processes of and parties of sex trafficking. So there are three elements of trafficking, the act or process, the way or means and the goal. And I think that they're all illuminated there in the king servant speech in two twenty. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 that I read. So by imperial and patriarchal decree, virgin girls are to be sought out and transported to the king's palace. That's the act and the process. Once the process is suggested by the servants and approved by the king, the tactics or means are carried out by the king's commissioners. Mm -hmm. Young girls are gathered by the commissioners and brought to the king, which is a strategy of disempowerment for the purpose of sexual exploitation. So that's the goal. And so I I am... I understand Xerxes as the perpetrator who sexually exploits the victim. The king's servants play the part of the vendors who extend the services and capital that make sex trafficking possible. The officers in the provinces of the king are the facilitators. They expedite the victimization process. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we know that these girls are the victims of sexual exploitation. Those girls that are brought to the king's harem.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank, thank you for that, that background. You're listening to Currents in Religion. I'm speaking with Dr. Erica Chandrika Dunbar about her book, Trafficking Hadassah. So part of your interpretive approach is to assume the polyvocality of Esther. Could you tell us what that means and what it allows you to do?
1: Sure. Polyvocality is a literary device that is characterized by multiple and varied voices and their perspectives. So polyvocality welcomes reflection on the multiple spaces summoned and controlled in the narrative and on the multiple layers of subjugated, suppressed, and often silenced identities within individuals and collectives. So I believe that polyvocality invites readers and interpreters to give attention to some of the minor figures of the story, um, the unnamed figures, the mm-hmm. faceless figures that are within the story and that often share parallel experiences with the major characters, but we don't focus on them or we haven't been taught to focus on them or um, pay attention to their stories. And so it enables us to, even if we can't say her name as um, we do in that you know, social movement, say her name, we can at least share their stories when we aren't given their names mm-hmm. and to highlight the their experiences and resist violent oppression. Yeah. So polyvocality for me summoned me to look in other places for markers of identity as well, such as look at the introduction to see that some of the girls came from India and, and from Africa mm-hmm. um, and that they are colonized. And to also pay attention to the class Um, statuses as well it helps me pay attention to the time that passes right so if we look at the introduction we see that the king um his reign that the story begins in the third year of his reign and at the end of this well at least when Esther is chosen it's the seventh year and so this is a four-year process wherein the girls have these cosmetic treatments for a year and then there's three years of each night the girl is going into the room um, having sex with the king, yeah. and so it requires us to um, identify those people and places in the text that we've often glossed over, um, and also helps us understand that the eunuchs are um, sexually abused as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Randall Bailey points out that to attend to the king, attend to the king, has sexual connotations, and so it's not just young virgin girls that are being sexually exploited, right. but the eunuchs as well. So polyvocality kind of opens the text up so that we can look at multiple people and multiple experiences in this text.
0: Right, and and along with polyvocality, you're you're pairing that with intersectionality. So, what role does intersectionality play in your interpretation?
1: Yes, thank you. So Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term, cites Black women's race, gender, and class as contributing to their disadvantage and discrimination, which she argues, leads to harsher consequences. So in short, intersectionality discards this single focus framework that Mm -hmm. views one aspect of our identity, in this case um, gender, as the sole contributor of oppression. She argues that this singular focus distorts the multidimensionality of often racialized women's experiences and leads to theoretical, methodological, and practical erasure, which is what I point out in my scholarship. Yeah. So she asserts that intersectionality enable, enables us to see and understand multiple markets of difference, such as gender, ethnicity, class, age and ability as mutually constitutive and contributing to personal and social oppression. Um, I think that the framework of intersectionality as well as polyvocality enables readers to see that these girls are targeted not just because they're females, right, but because they're young, mm-hmm. but because they're beautiful they are virgins, they are females, they are colonized. Some of them, as we um, learn about Hadassah, are vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So orphaned and being fostered by some individual's if you read the text, it says that the edicts are sent out in different languages, and so there might be language barriers as well. And yeah. I think that intersectionality and polyvocality helps us to pay attention to these aspects of the text as well as um, different aspects of identities mm-hmm. that are con- that contribute to oppression.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's. I mean, it's a a it's a way of reading that broadens out so much from the story and and not not outside of the story but but allows us to maybe i should say see more deeply and widely within the story itself yeah
1: Yeah. and to um one example of that is again not reading the major characters right or not pitting like a lot of people pit basti and esther against Mm -hmm. each other right but it helps us to see that although they are individuals right and they have these aspects of their identities that are not congruent. They have similar experiences and both are oppressed, right? Um, Because I don't perceive that the sexual trafficking is initiated in chapter two with the gathering of these girls. Rather, it starts in chapter one with Mm -hmm. this, you know, sexualized gaze of Vashti and then it's intensified in chapter two, right? Right. Um, And so, again, it deepens our analysis and enables us to see that this is systemic, Mm -hmm. right, Um oppression and that it impacts multiple people yeah. and not just those major characters
0: right right yeah it gives good attention to the to the other women who are unnamed right um right yeah so continuing on with the kind of kinds of questions about your and in, your interpretive approach i love this so much you you describe yourself as an interpreter to be a storyteller what do you think that being a storyteller does for interpreting the book of Esther?
1: As a storyteller, I am able to propose readings that seek to make meaning and justice at the interface of biblical of the biblical text and the history of Africana women's um, lives. These are not mere stories, rather. They are stories and histories, mm. um, histories that reflect abuse, and exploitation of particularly Africana girls and women at the hand of patriarchs, colonizers, and dare I say, at the hand of religious leaders. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a a South African scholar, Professor Funola Olajehi, who argues that storytelling can be employed as a powerful tool in biblical interpretation. And so she says that biblical stories have moral power because they intersect with our own stories. Right. And not only are these Stories easily relatable, but our stories are shaped by our family stories, by our communal, communal stories, um, and by sacred stories. But not only are we impacted and shaped by those stories, but I believe that our stories shape and influence what we see in biblical texts, right? Yeah. And so for me, speaking to women that have been sexually abused and trafficked, they were able to identify those processes of trafficking and abuse. Right. And reveal it, you know, to me, uncover it for me. And that impacted how I then understood and interpreted the story. So there's this dance or exchange Mm -hmm. between stories, right, that or illuminates what we see in the other story.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So ultimately, you suggest, and and this is a, a quote, some stories cannot or should not be redeemed. Instead, these stories can and should teach readers about themselves and their roles in perpetuating oppressive ideologies and practices. Could you say a little bit more about about that that part of your conclusion or your suggestion?
1: Sure. So often, because my interpretation is so different, different and it critiques the sexual violence, a lot of people don't walk away with any um, understandings of how this story can be redemptive or useful in contemporary context. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that bi- the intention, our intention is to redeem biblical stories. Yeah. right? I just think that there are stories that we can learn from. And I think that we can learn what to do. And there are some stories that teach us what not to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this might be one of those stories that yeah. teach us what not to do. Um, and so I don't try to redeem the story. I just take it at face value and try to um, assess what is happening in the story, um, understand the power dynamics at play, and then discern how I can use my power to transform oppressive systems so that we're not perpetuating these same types types of behaviors in the contemporary context.
0: Right. So can I ask a follow-up question? Mm-hmm. Um I'm thinking of of certain um, certain folks who suggest that I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head who I'm who I'm thinking of. Um, it might have been uh, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza um, in, in Bread Not Stone, um, who says, you know, there, there are certain texts that probably just shouldn't be preached from uh, in, in the congregation. They probably still serve some kind of catechetical purpose, some teaching purpose in the congregation, Maybe. Like what you're saying, they teach us what not to do, but they maybe shouldn't be used for proclamation. Um, th- thinking down that line, what would you what would you think about Esther as a, a text to preach? Is it is it something that should be preached, or is it something that maybe serves a different purpose in, for example, a congregational setting?
1: I absolutely think that it should be um, read and preached in congregational settings. And one thing I want to point out is that many of us that are in the academy, are also a part of many churches, right, Right, Um, have leadership roles in the church and in wider society. So I think that it's our responsibility to ensure that everyone has access to rigorous and to varied types of biblical study and biblical interpretations. Um, And I think that we must do what I've tried to do in this book, and that's offer different frames to not only acknowledge and embrace biblical um, polyvocality, but to create it and to practice polyvocality in our own context to dis- to encourage diverse readings and understandings of sacred texts. Uh, one of the things that I remembered about the story of Esther growing up, I, I rarely heard people preach about Esther, but when I heard sermons, it was more, um, t- the titles were more like, One Night with the King or Mm. For Such a Time as This, right? Right. And I think that those titles are taken out of context and we don't understand what's going on with that One Night with the King, right? And so we inadvertently are promoting rape culture because that's what's happening. Each night a girl is being raped, right? Right. (laughs) And then For Such a Time as This, we want to celebrate um, Esther rising up to... deliver her people but we gloss over what she had to go through in order to save her people and what i think is interesting in a negative way is that no one stood up to protect her Mm -hmm. right when she was being sexually abused but then mordecai presses her to save all of these people right because of his actions right so i think that we have to be responsible in how we read and interpret the text and not just throw around these catchy phrases from the biblical text to excite people. Mm -hmm. Um, And another part of that is we also have to realize that sometimes victims of abuse conflate the king with God and with pastors. And so sometimes preaching from the preaching, those sermons might re-traumatize them um, because they've been exploited by mm. the king or they've been exploited by the pastor who right. they, you know, now conflated with the king or their pimp says, you know, I am your God, right? right. So we have to think about how people interact with text, biblical text, and how um, our proclamation impacts them. Yeah.
0: Dr. Dunbar, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us and for writing this important and really, really great book. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Dunbar for making time to chat with us. Now I'm going to turn things over to Dave Nelson, director of Baylor Press, to introduce you to a Baylor Press author and to their new book.
2: You're listening to The Elevator Speech an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm your host, Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press. Today on The Elevator Speech, we're joined by Dr. Kendall Cox, Director of Academic Affairs at the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, and author of Prodigal Christ, a Parabolic Theology, now available from Baylor University Press. Kendall, thanks for being with us today. What's your elevator speech for Prodigal Christ? What's the big idea?
3: Well, first, thank you, Dave, for having me. And I wanna thank all the good folks at Baylor University Press for working with me on this project and bringing it to fruition. So, thank you. Prodigal Christ is about what it sounds like. It's a Christological reading of the parable of the prodigal son. And as I think many people know, this parable is found only in Luke 15, 11 through 32. And it's one of the most popular of all of Jesus's teachings. It's been retold, reinterpreted, represented countless different ways over the last couple of millennia in every variety of genre and medium. So not just in theology and biblical studies, but in literature, theater, painting, film, and so on. Uh, It's really just one of the most enduring themes in, in Western art. So it's curious that despite all the creative attention it's gotten, um, no one, or no one that I'm aware of, and if anyone else is aware of someone, I'd love to know, but no one um, ventures to read the prodigal son, um, the, the character, the prodigal son, Christologically until the late 20th century. And it's curious that the first person apparently to do this is a modern critical reader, Karl Bart. So Bart claims that we leave the story underinterpreted, or we don't do justice to the story if we don't admit that there's a parallel between Jesus Christ, the storyteller, and the lost son, who's the main character in the story. And he says this identity between Jesus and the younger son in his far journey is given, quote, in, with, and under the plain meaning of the narrative. Now, if you know, Bart, the question arises, is this just his usual Relentless Christocentrism for which he's sometimes critiqued? Or does Bart see something in the text that really no one ever before him saw? And this prompts another question: what if someone before him did see it? Would this change the way that we respond to a Christological reading of the prodigal son? So reading around in my doctoral studies, as one does, I noticed something in Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. Uh, if you're familiar with Julian, you'll, you'll know she's typically classified um, as, a, as a mystic, and that's something I call into question. But she tells a fascinating story that's usually referred to as the example or parable of the lord and servant or master and servant. And the story bears strong structural and literary resemblance with the parable of the prodigal son. And what's more surprising to Bart's interpretation of the parable And the more time I spent with it, the more I became convinced that this was a creative homiletic retelling of the Lucan narrative. And it recasts uh, the key figures in her own idiom. So initially as a master and servant, but then eventually she morphs back into the language of, of father and son. And thankfully, I found a couple of other scholars who agree with this, but there hadn't been any kind of extensive work on it Um, so in the same way as bart julian reads the wayward servant son figure as polyvalent he represents fallen humanity but also the incarnate christ as well as the eternal son of god so how do these two disparate but monumental figures in the tradition both come to such a rare conclusion what's interesting is that they overlay the parable with the same web of scriptural stories and images. And I I won't run through all the chapters and verses, but most notably related to creation, fall, captivity, and exile, incarnation, uh, divine kenosis, these emblematic narratives of descent and ascent. So the identification of the prodigal son and Jesus Christ emerges intertextually. Uh, The book also looks at length at the doctrinal ramifications of the identity between the eternal son and the prodigal son, which is more than we can get into in an elevator speech. Um, But there is one more thing I just want to highlight. I don't think it's incidental that the parable form becomes the vehicle for doing Christology. So the point isn't just, you know, Oh, cool. There are these interesting, unusual Christological readings of the parable. The point is to elevate parable as a genre of theology that is uniquely fitting for discourse about the complex identity of God incarnate. So the parable form allows us to do something that bothers Bart's methodological imagination for years, and that's to speak out of both sides of our mouth, to to retell multiple stories and identities at once and as one. So that's the reason for the tag and the title, Prodigal Christ, a parabolic theology.
2: Excellent an exciting book. Thank you, Kendall, for sharing your elevator speech with us. Thank you, Dave. You've been listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm Dave Nelson, director of Baylor University Press, and today my guest has been Dr. Kendall Cox, author of Prodigal Christ, A Parabolic Theology, now available from Baylor University Press.
0: That will do it for this episode, friends. Thanks again for joining us. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. And you can interact with us on Twitter at C-I-R-Baylor. Until next time, take care.